The following sermon was delivered on October 4th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Pipa Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Believer's Goal on 1 Timothy 1.5. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, most of us um, set certain goals in our lives. Sometimes we do this explicitly, maybe at New Year's or at a birthday time we take stock and we might set intellectual goals or physical goals or economic goals. Even if you don't set goals, most of us live by some implicit goals, things that we have inherited in our family culture, things that guide us at the back of our mind. And goals are important. Without goals, we achieve not nearly as much as we would with goals. Spiritually, goals are also very important. I trust that you do have uh, spiritual goals, not just in terms of performance things, such as reading the Bible, but uh, in terms of your heart, in terms of uh, uh, sins against which you wrestle. Very important as we come today to the Lord's table, that you are intentional about things that you need God to deal with. But in our text tonight, 1 Timothy 1.5, the apostle gives us the overarching goal of the Christian life, and that is love. Love, love, love. I remind you what's going on here in 1 Timothy. Paul wrote this letter about 63 AD, from probably from Philippi. Timothy was in Ephesus and he was having to deal with a number of problems in the church, as well as to structure the church with respect to right doctrine and right worship and right leadership and practice in the church. And I said before, this is the, the reason that I've chosen to start with this book uh, for our mission work. For here we're going to learn about all these things as we seek again to build from scratch with no inherited traditions. We can examine everything by the Word of God and be developed accordingly. So remember that we saw in the first four verses that this message in Timothy is a divine message. It is a timeless message. It is a gracious message, and it is a protective message. So Paul ends in verse 4 with this contrast that the false teachers, because of the game playing they were doing at this point with genealogies and scripture and and vain and baseless speculation, are doing nothing to promote the faith of the believers, nothing to see them develop in godliness. So what we have in our text, you'll notice, is a contrast with that, with the very simple little word, but. So what they were doing gave rise to speculation rather than the administration of God, which is by faith, but the goal of our instruction is love. So I want to show you tonight that the... Um, the Christian's goal is love. Christian's goal in life is love. Rather than produced, I would change the language to flowing from these three things. A pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. But a Christian's goal is love flowing from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. We'll consider two things. First, the, the Christian's goal, which is love, and then the source of that goal. Well, Paul begins the contrast here with the 
great goal of the Christian life, which is love. He says the goal of our instruction is love. Instruction here is the apostolic teaching. It's a word that means commandment and direction. I think it includes everything that the apostle delivered to the churches verbally and in his letters. And because of that, we can say that this instruction or this commandment holds true for all the teaching of Scripture. As we saw two weeks ago, Paul wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he wrote was the divine, timeless word of God. And so we can say that all the Bible is for um, the instruction that leads to love. Every doctrine that we believe, every commandment that we heed is unto this great goal in our lives. Now, love, well, that's a difficult thing to define, isn't it? Back when a couple of us were still always early on alive in the 70s, there was a terrible book that came out called Love Story. And it was known for its great line, love is never having to say, I'm sorry. That's a pretty sorry definition of love. Let me give you one that's a bit better. Let's think about love this way. It is an affectionate disposition and commitment for the well-being of its object. An affectionate disposition and commitment for the well-being of its object. Love, then, is an act of the will. That's what I mean by commitment. It is, it is living, obeying, doing that which is honoring to God and treats our neighbor as we want to be treated. It's a disposition, though, and that is it must come from a character. It cannot be divorced from the habit, the character, the disposition of who we are. But also, it is to be affectionate. It should be coming from a genuine affection for the objects of our love. Now, the affection waxes and wanes, as you well know. And sometimes it has a greater force in our lives and sometimes much less. And regardless of the affection, we must be true to the commitment. We must, we must love with our wills. We must do what we ought to do even when we do not feel like doing it. But we want to cultivate that affection. Let that be the ground. So when Paul says that love is the goal of instruction, he's reminding us of this important relationship of the gospel and love. When the uh, Westminster Standards speak of saving faith, it says that we're justified by faith alone, but that faith is not alone. And the very first product of that faith is love. So in Galatians 5, 6, Paul dealing with all these false doctrines of salvation, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Saving faith immediately begins to love. Saving faith immediately begins to respond to God in love and to our neighbor in love. And you can see then so often in the letters how Paul is telling the churches, he's praying that they will grow in, in their grasp of love, in the exercise of love, in the knowledge that leads to love. So the great goal 
of all apostolic instruction. Thus, the great goal of everything we have in Scripture in the Old and New Testament is that we love. We love God and we love our neighbor. So love, in a sense, gives form to the gospel. Faith acts through love. But love is not to be considered subjectively. It's not a matter of our feelings. No, love has feet as well. And the feet of love, we're told by our Savior, is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Biblical love, gospel love, shows forth itself by obedience. So the Savior, in responding to the um, biblical lawyer in Matthew chapter 29, when he, uh, 22, when he's asked about the great commandment, um, he says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You can see the similarity there. The goal of our teaching is love. Love, according to the Old Testament, was the summary of all the teaching of the Old Testament, to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And of course, in taking those two commandments, the Savior is pointing your attention where? It's pointing your attention to the law of God. The first four commandments, the first table of the law, have to do in particular with our love for God. That we are to have, have a, a zeal for the true God. We are to have a zeal for His worship and His word. We're to have a zeal for his name and his honor. We're to have a zeal for his day. That's what love does. We hate what's opposed to God. We have a zeal for and affection for that which God has revealed to us, that he wants from us. The gospel has freed us to do this. We've been delivered from sin that we might love God in this manner. Even as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 as he deals with the great truth, of justification, that there's no condemnation in Christ, he wraps that up in verse 4 by saying, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has saved us. God justifies us. He delivers us from condemnation so that we might walk in the requirements of the law as new men and women, boys. And girls. Of course, then, if we love God, we're going to love our neighbor. And that is particularly the last six commandments, what we refer to as the second table of the law. Now, all sin in the first place is against God. I hope you understand David's confession after he committed sexual sin and, and military murder says, against you and you only have I sinned. We should always remember that. But the second table of the law points our attention to our responsibility to one another. In the body of Christ, to love each other sacrificially as Christ loved us, but to our neighbor outside of Christ, even to love him as we would love ourselves. So the great goal is love, and the measure of that love is responding to God, responding to people by obedience to the holy will of God. But let's return to that matter of affection. We all recognize the, often our dullness 
And it's better to obey as an act of the will than not to obey. But we all long to obey from our affections, from the depth of our being. And so love can also become to us the motivation for love. And by that I mean it's God's love for us that can become for us the motivation of love. So in 1 John chapter 4, as John there is dealing with this issue of love for God and neighbor, he says in verse 7 and following, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the sin offering, the wrath deflector for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. Skip down. By this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. But the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother. So in one sense, John is simply summarizing what I've said, that the goal is love, love for God. And if we love God, we're going to love our neighbor. Notice the great motivation is to consider the love of God for us. That's when your heart is dead and, and cold. You don't want to love. You need to stop and meditate on who you were. What would be your final destiny? God had not in eternity placed his love on you. That costly love of God because God the Son to take our nature and to come in a state of awful, low humiliation in order to fulfill every demand of the law, to satisfy all of the curse and punishment of the law that you and I might be saved. We consider God's love for us. That stirs up love within us. You see then, as love is the goal of all Christian instruction, love then should be a standard of measurement for all of us. And as I think on that, I am reminded of words that make me very uncomfortable in Ephesians, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Paul's letters to the seven churches, he begins with the church in Ephesus, to whom he's writing here about the importance of love. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. So what John's showing us here is that uh, 
Paul's letter and Timothy's ministry paid off. And the church had become a, a rigorously sound in practice and in doctrine. And so it's a bit of a shock, isn't it, to continue reading. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And what's uncomfortable about this, for me anyway, is that they were theologically orthodox. They were rigorous in their defense of biblical Christianity. They exercised a careful church discipline. But he said that he would come and remove their lampstand. They would cease to be a true church because they had lost their founding principle, love. Here, dear friends, we see the importance of this goal in the mind of God. It's important for us because we are a class of Christians who are rigorously committed to these things that the Ephesian church um, was committed to. Uh, he could be describing many of our congregations here in Greenville and Spartanburg area. But does he also say about us that I have this against you? You've lost your first love. In our churches, it's so easy to begin to worship and paint by the numbers. To go through all, the, all of the orthodox things that we should do and say. And yet, no love toward God as we do those things. What about in your life, in my life? In our orthodoxy, in our zeal for truth, in our zeal for good worship, what is the role of love in our response to God? Is it said of us? I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Today, as we will come to the Lord's table, keep this in mind, keep this text in mind, and, and cry out to God in your poverty, in your lack of love. He will bring this balance to your life and to our life as a um, incipient congregation. And so the Christian's goal is love. The goal of the Christian is love. Now, what's the source of this love? Well, Paul noticed the grammar as he puts this together. He says the goal is love, and then he relates love to these three things. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, what's a pure heart? Sometimes we think of heart, we think of emotions, we think of Valentine's hearts of, that reflect that. But uh, in the Bible, the heart is really the, the control room of the person. It's the center of operation of the soul. That is the primary way that is used in Scripture. And thus Solomon instructs us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, to watch carefully. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It is the center, you see. This Bible uses this word heart. It is the center. So this love is to come from a pure heart. Now, why does God put the word pure there? Because by nature, our hearts are not pure. They're cesspools. Just look at one description, or consider one description that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 15. He describes the nature of our heart as it is in our unconverted 
condition. Do you not understand, verse 17, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man, for out of the heart comes come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. The heart is a cesspool. By nature, we're born dead in our sins and trespasses, and, and in our natural condition, this is who we are. We might have a nice facade. We might have all kinds of, uh, of good moral appearance, but inwardly, this is what we are, by birth, by nature. And so the heart must be renewed. That's why we read Ezekiel chapter 36. He gives the promise of what God does for his chosen people. He comes and cleanses and renews the heart. In verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the great work of the Holy Spirit that our Savior describes Nicodemus as being born again. It is the great passageway from darkness to uh, light, from death to light. This great work of spiritual transformation, this is the sovereign work of God. And so a pure heart must begin in the depths of God's grace. But when that takes place, we immediately then look to God in repentance and sorrow for sin and a faith that is resting in Christ alone for our acceptance and our salvation. Thus the pure heart, having responded to Christ in that way with the realization of what God has done, then loves God. And as we recognize that we sin, it's the pure heart then that is broken in sin and cries out again to Christ for pardon, knowing full well that he pardons us and accepts us on the basis of his perfect work on our behalf. So love comes from a pure heart. And then you show the next, the next thing is it comes from a good conscience. Now what is the Conscience. Conscience is something of which the great majority of us are ignorant. Let's say you woke up this morning and you just were a little off, just a little slightly depressed, and you're thinking that, well, I had a bad dream that I can't remember, or maybe something I ate last night. Nine times out of ten or more, if you just stop and reflect, to some undealt with sin in the afternoon or evening before that your conscience is what is depressing you at this point. And we ignore it. We don't think about the conscience. The conscience is a great thing that God has given to us. It was given to us at creation, part of our being the image bearers of God. It's this faculty that is in the soul by which, at that point, in Adam's case, the heart had the law of God written on it perfectly. And then the conscience, on the basis of that standard, would... Uh, 
look at actions and bear witness for or against those actions with an indictment. Of course, with the fall, the conscience becomes a bad conscience. Not destroyed. No, it's, it's powerful enough, says Paul, that it is the grounds of judgment of anyone who's not heard the Scriptures. The conscience will be sufficient grounds for judgment to cast all those into hell who have not ever heard a bit of God's Word. But of course, the natural man fights against his conscience, and he tries everything he can to subdue the conscience. But it's through the conscience that God brings conviction of sin. And we should always address the conscience, and that we should recognize this is where the gospel work begins. Not in good news. There cannot be good news if you're not crying out in pain that you are lost and undone. We begin with the conscience. Thus, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict the conscience, he then works to renew the heart. And as he renews the heart, the writer of the Hebrews tells us then in chapter 10, he does something for the conscience as well. In verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So when the heart is renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit, we take hold of Christ, the blood of Christ, uh, in this figurative sense, is sprinkled on our consciences to cleanse them from defilement. And they become good consciences, and they bear testimony to us that we are, in fact, sons and daughters of God which leads to that glorious peace that we spoke of two weeks ago. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Or as the Catechism says in 36, that the things that accompany and flow from the great doctrines of salvation are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what God gives to us. Now, the conscience must be instructed. As we are renewed and the conscience is cleansed from its defilement and its initial accusations of guilt, it's still been abused, particularly in those of us who have lived apart from Christ longer. Now, you children should have well-trained consciences as you have new hearts and you're being reared in a Christian home. But the conscience must always be instructed by the Word of God. The conscience can direct wrongly because it's been informed wrongly uh, throughout the life of the person. So it's very important that we train our consciences by the Word of God, but be aware you may never act against conscience. That's a sin, Paul says. You may not act against, even though your conscience might bear, tell you something that you, you really ought to do or, or shouldn't do, let's say, and you do it, you've sinned, even though not doing it was also a sin. You've got to uh, act always by faith. So you instruct the conscience, the conscience then will show you what's going on in your life as it's instructed by Scripture. And as it convicts you of sin, that then drives you back to the Lord Jesus Christ for the cleansing to maintain a pure heart. But that brings us to the last thing he says here, and that is a sincere faith. Five times now in these first five verses, Paul has focused on a proper kind of faith. His doing so obviously teaches us that there's such a thing as a hypocritical faith. 
And today our churches are full of people who think that they have saving faith when in fact they have a hypocritical and an insincere faith. What does a sincere faith do? A sincere faith, when the conscience bears testimony against certain actions in God's law or against God's law, repents, doesn't make excuses for itself, doesn't gloss over, doesn't cast blame. No, sincere faith will always begin with repentance, which isn't simply a sorrow for sin, but a hatred for sin and a full purpose endeavor after new obedience. And in that repentance, we're taking hold of Christ for the pardon of our sins. You see how the circle is working? That the, out of the pure heart comes a good conscience, and the good conscience drives us to Christ in sincere faith, and that brings us back then to the cleansing of our hearts. You see then how these three things work together to be that out of which the love of God flows. The better we know God, the better we know ourselves, the better we realize the, the glory of pardon of sin, and the assurance that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. And you well know the, the joy of a good conscience when you have been plagued with guilt. How all these things contribute to love for God. You see, this is really what the Christian life is all about. It is to be our goal because it is God's goal for us. That he has saved us that we may love him. He teaches us then from his word that we may love him. He gives his commandments that we may love him. Love, the goal of the Christian's life. Love flowing from uh, a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. Now, this is something that's very important to us as we begin this work. I'll give you a term that you're going to hear a lot here so you can begin to try to learn it. It's called experimental Christianity. I think in this group I can say experimental Calvinism. You see, part of the problem, I think, with Revelation, with Ephesus, was they'd lost the end. It wasn't just the, the, the motive. They'd lost the purpose. See, there's not one doctor in the Bible that is to be known abstractly that we can check off our list. Oh, I've got that one down. Not one commandment in the Bible that we can simply say, well, I know that and I do it. All biblical truth should bring us to a point of loving and worshiping God. You see, that's what this is all about. That's what this goal is about. It's not about you and me. It's about God. It's about God being honored in our lives. God being glorified. And what we want to do in this church and in our worship, and that's why we do some things that we're going to do, in our teaching and preaching, in our pastoral visitation, the great thing that will be driving us is that we all together will grow in this love of God, in this recognition that no truth is to be embraced abstractly. It's not sufficient that you memorize the catechism, that you can check off all the doctrinal boxes, and that you live a life of moral probity. It must all bring you back to God. And so another word for this goal is the very first question answer of our catechism. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And that's no simple another way of saying loving Him. To be gripped with the reality of who He is and to give Him everything that we have. And we understand this, we recognize as well that the fruit of the gospel being love 
becomes then a very important measuring stick with respect to false teaching. And Christ does this, for example, in Matthew chapter 7. Talks about the false teachers in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. All teaching should be able to be examined by its product, by its fruit. Is it righteousness? Is it love? Is it God's glory? Or is it sin, debauchery, sin, corruption, man's glory and self-centeredness? But notice how he then applies that to us individually. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That by which we measure others, dear friends, we must also measure ourselves. You see, this is a clear parallel to the Ephesian church. They were orthodox. They had spiritual gifts. They were teachers in the church. And yet he said, depart from me because you are a worker of iniquity. So this afternoon, I want every one of you to examine himself by this standard of love. Do you love God? Oh, not, no way perfectly. None of us do. We're sinners saved by grace. But is that uh, at the bottom of your being? Is it that disposition that will produce the commitment, an affectionate commitment to love and serve God? Or do you simply live your Christian life on the basis of checklist and, and um, the standards of orthodoxy? You don't go beyond there. In your Bible reading, is it sufficient that you have done it for today? Or have you communed with God? Have you come to know Him better? You need to examine your conscience in light of this standard that uh, Paul gives us here. And if, in fact, you find yourself wanting there's but one place to go, and that is to repent of hypocrisy, of insincere faith, and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we come now to uh, the Lord's table. We come aware of our weaknesses and our sins. And this is, this is spiritual food. This is better than that uh, little bottle that uh, the young lady had in Chronicles of Narnia. It heal wounds. This heals spiritual wounds. This is food that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit will take. You come to the Lord's table aware of your needs and your brokenness and your cold heart. Take hold of Christ for these things. And moreover, you meditate on his sufferings. For that meditation is designed to, to break our hearts and to break open the dam of our cold affections. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.